0: Friends, let's open in our Bibles to Acts chapter 4. I'm going to be in Acts 4. I'm going to start reading in verse 23. Peter and John have just been released from jail. They've been confronted by the religious leaders. And then they go and we pick them up in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let's pray together. Lord, send that fresh anointing of the Spirit on us as well this morning, as we need boldness and courage and endurance and strength if we are to run this race that you have marked out for us in this place that can be hostile to us. I pray that you would do that in our church body, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, saints, if you have ever felt ill at home in this nation or in this place or in this world, maybe this week is that week for you. I haven't heard a single Republican, Democrat, independent walk out of this weekend, this week, this election year, this season in our nation's history and say, man, I'm really glad how that turned out. Like, I'm really proud of how we conducted ourselves and and where we got ourselves today. No, it's been a grievous time in our nation's history. And in fact, our divided, our fractured, our spiteful nation creates real fear On both sides of the aisle. And I don't think the election swinging in either direction could heal this nation or heal this nation quickly. Do you feel uncertain about the future? Do you feel uncertain about whether our nation can heal? Do you feel uncertain about what COVID is going to do next? Do you feel uncertain about what the economy is going to do next? Do you feel uncertain about civil rights or human rights or religious rights? Do you feel this uncertainty in the air right now? It's here. And I think sometimes it helps us to listen to the global church, present day and in the past, because oftentimes and often places they have been here before in places darker and scarier than maybe where we stand today. And we get the chance to do that with this earliest of churches in the first century when we lean into the scene that is happening here. Because in our passage, Peter and John and the church are getting a wake-up call. I mean, this day, this two-day affair, it started as a dream come true. On their way to the temple, they heal a man who's born lame, people are excited, people are converted, everything's wonderful, and then the dream turns into a nightmare because the religious leaders pounce, and they throw him in jail, and they hold a council, and they threaten them and say, we don't want to hear you speak of this name again. And now the church finds themselves between a rock and a hard place. The commission of Jesus to tell the nations about his good name and the law of the land that says we don't want to hear that name ever spoken again. What are they going to do? It's beautiful to see their first response in verse 23. When they were released They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. The very first thing they do in suffering is to tell the church, to go to the church, to communicate with the church. Suffering is not independent work in the Christian life. It's a group assignment, is something that we all do together. Paul said, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Paul said elsewhere, when one member suffers, all suffer. Suffering is to be shared among the church body. Christian, I tell you, invite the church into your struggle. Do not push her away. We are family and we are called to move towards each other in suffering. Let me plead with you, Don't wait for the church to come and find you. You know how we sometimes do that with our spouses or our roommates? Like we're angry about something, but we're not gonna be the one to say it. Instead, I'm gonna come home and I'm gonna slam a few doors and I'm gonna bang some pots and pans and I'm going to give gruff answers until the other person gives in and says, is there anything bothering you? And it's like, yes, finally. You know, I've been waiting all day, all year for you to say that. Don't do that with the church. Do not wait for the church to come and find you. Don't even wait for the elders to come and find you. Don't wait for the paid staff to come and find you. That's their job. They might lose their job if they can't find you. But if you hole up in suffering, even when it hurts and you don't want to see anybody, You are hurting the church from its ability to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We can't be the body we're called to be unless we are willing to step out one to another and say, I am hurting right now. I'm suffering right now. I'm struggling right now. We move towards each other. It's beautiful to see Peter and John even lead in that. These are pillars and leaders of the church They might've assumed they don't have to do something like that. They could just hold up with the disciples and tell them, but instead they bring their vulnerability to the church and say, we need help so that their friends could do this in verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God. That's the best thing the church can do with and for us It's to hear that suffering and it's to bring it before God and before his throne and present those requests to him together. That's what a faithful church does for each other in suffering. Well, I wanna camp out on this prayer because it's beautiful and there's a lot here for us. And I wanna unpack how does the church respond? What does her prayer look like when she's thinking about these serious things? Now, the point I'm going to make about this prayer is all George Murray. Dr. George Murray, the former president of CIU, he's a friend of mine. He preached one of the last sermons in here before the COVID quarantine. Maybe some of you remembered that sermon. But he rattled through several passages, I think including this very passage that I'm reading now, all to make the point of reasoning, he said, from the greater to the lesser. Anybody remember that sermon in here? Reasoning from the greater to the lesser. In other words, this prayer has a strategy and that is to start with all the big things, the greater things that God is able to do and has done in creation and history and then work our way down to the small thing that we are dealing with that surely he is capable of doing. You start with the greater, you start with what he's capable of doing and you move your way down to the lesser, what surely he is able to do. Now, we actually do that all the time with each other. We do that with each other. We do that with our favorite sports team. When we say, you know, we've beaten this ranked team and that ranked team, surely we're going to beat this team this weekend, right? From the greater to the lesser, we're, you know, sore subject. We're, you know, some of us, so not in the state of South Carolina, but someone somewhere is going to beat somebody, um, <laughs> We do that. We kind of reason from the greater to the lesser. When we need God's provision, we say, God who owns a cattle on a thousand hills, you know, surely he can provide for my next meal. Mothers do this with their children. I brought you into this world. I can take you out. It took me nine months to bring you here. It'll take me nine seconds to take you out. We go from the greater to the lesser, and it makes sense. It's like she can do that. She has that power that's the meat of their prayer. They're going to start big and they're going to work small because if you get in your minds that God can do whatever he wants with creation and history, then you're ready to pray the request that you have for this particular situation. So their prayer kind of moves in these three steps. Step one, verse 24, listen to this. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them? Isn't that a wonderfully clarifying place to start a prayer? I am speaking to the Lord of the universe. I'm talking to a God who can speak light into existence, who can place the stars in the heavens. I'm talking to a God who fills up the seas like we draw a bath, and then he populates them with creatures that we haven't even discovered yet. We are talking about a God who holds this creation in his hands. Not a sparrow can fall without his knowledge. Not a lily can grow in the field that hasn't been dressed by him. Not a raindrop can fall that hasn't come from his storehouse. This is the God that we pray to, the Lord of the universe. Now Christian, suffering Christian, I beg you to pray to the God of the Bible with this kind of richness and not a caricature of that God. I plead with you to pray doctrine and pray precision. Now, I know that can sound a little bit dull to think about praying doctrine, but you have a living example right here, and you're able to hold in your mind two kinds of prayers. One is a theologically sound, biblically saturated, rich, sovereign prayer. And the other one might be these theologically tepid things that we kick around when we have a need. So listen to them side by side. A sound prayer. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them versus a brittle prayer that says, dear big guy upstairs, if you're listening right now, I need some help. You see the difference between those two? Which prayer meeting are you attending? Which God is big enough to hold the request that you have? Which God is attractive enough for our kids to hear us praying to and they will want to follow themselves? If our kids grow up in a household of parents who shoot up a flare every once in a while just in case God is listening to help out with whatever's going on, I pray those kids leave that household religion and they come find this God of the Bible. But if they see parents who face circumstances outside their control, on their knees to this kind of sovereign God of the earth and the heavens. I pray our kids love him and never leave him. This is the God that we're praying to. But here's the, the beauty of prayer and even praying like that because by definition, when we pray, we go to do some serious talking, right? I'm, I've got God's attention, and I'm ready to talk, and I'm ready to say a few things, so we go to do some talking, but if our talking comes out of the Word, which is coming out of His talking, His Bible, His Scripture, His truth, then all of a sudden, we find ourselves being changed by the very things that we are praying to God. In other words, who benefits more by addressing God as sovereign creator of the universe. Is it God or is it the church? I promise you, it's not God. I promise you, He's not hearing this prayer and saying, You know what? You're right. I am sovereign and I did make stuff. I bet I could do this. No, He's not doing that. But the church, as they bow in prayer, and recognize the God that they pray to and what he is capable of, all of a sudden that expands our vision of the glory of God and it changes the way we pray. Sometimes we're bringing requests too small, And we don't even notice that until we recognize that the God that we're praying to has filled the oceans with its creatures and all of a sudden this diddly little thing that I was gonna pray for seems too small and I gotta throw that away and I gotta bring a bigger request because I'm praying to that kind of God. Prayer changes us as we address God for who he is. So start big in prayer. God controls all creation. When you pray that, you're ready for their step two, which is God controls all history. He's got creation, he's got all history, and that comes to us in verses 25 and 26. This prayer is quoting Psalm 2, which is a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that's all about Jesus, and it's prophesying. It's saying there's always going to be resistance to Jesus. The Lord's anointed, there will always be resistance to him from every corner of humanity. The Gentiles rage, the people plot in vain, the kings of the earth and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. So God's people here in this passage and us today might be facing opposition and that might be new for us, but this reminds us that that is never new for God. He fully anticipates this and this is within his perfect plan. Any kind of opposition that falls hot and heavy against the church is never outside of God's control. So now we've got a God who controls creation and we've got a God who controls history. Nothing comes to pass in this world outside of God's control and opposed to God's perfect plan do you believe that? Macro level, micro level. Nothing comes to pass in this world outside God's control and opposed to God's perfect plan. Now that's a massive biblical statement that would use a lot of references to support it, which we don't have time for now save this one example which is given to us by the people praying in verse 27 and 28. So they set up the scene for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. That's what he says. Now hear this, verse 28. To do whatever your hands and your plan had predestined to take place. Do you hear what they are praying right now? They are saying that the most heinous act in human history, the most vile, offensive thing that has ever been done in human history, which is the The crucifixion of the Son of God was God's predestined plan to take place. You've got all these actors in the story. You've got Herod and Pontius Pilate. You've got the Romans and the soldiers. And you've got Israel. And they all thought they were halting something from happening. Really, they were helping it happen because it was God's perfect plan. God's sovereignty holds all things including man's sin and wickedness. This is kind of mind bending for us, but not a single person could have woken up that morning, Pontius Pilate, Herod, the Roman soldiers, the crowds, and said, we're not going to go through with this. We're not going to crucify Jesus today. I'm going to declare him not guilty. The crowds are going to ask for Jesus and not Barabbas. Not a single person could bend God's will in a single way and yet be fully responsible for those hateful actions. That's like, that's heavy to hold in our minds together. Trevor and I just bought a really expensive, really large book about God's sovereignty and human responsibility. It's 1,200 pages. When I'm done, I'll give you some more answers. But yesterday I was sitting over peanut butter and jelly sandwiches with my seven-year-old and my nine-year-old and the one said, you know what, my brother said that God controls everything we do and I set him straight and told him he doesn't. And I was like, well, the seven-year-old is right. He does hold absolutely everything in his hands. And it's hard to bring that together. Sovereignty and human responsibility. But it came to us in that passage. You could flip back a page to chapter 2, verse 23. In a single verse, bringing these two together. It says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So that's divine sovereignty. Nothing is going to happen outside of God's perfect plan. And then Peter switches. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God's perfect plan, you did this wicked thing, and you will be judged. All that to say, nothing happens outside of God's control. Nothing happens in creation. Nothing happens in history. There's not a sparrow in creation that can fall outside of God's hand. There's not a nation that can rage against God in history, outside of God's plan. He holds creation. He holds history. He holds all things. And if you start there with the greater, creation and history, then all of a sudden step three looks really, really easy. Whatever he's dealt with on the big scale, he can deal with on my scale. Verse 29, they're ready to say, and now, Lord, look upon their threats. Look upon their threats. Look upon how I am suffering, what I am enduring, what the enemy is doing against me, what is being worked against me. Look at these things. You go from the greater to the lesser. So we watch Peter and John. They suffer. They run to the church. They seek prayer. The church has this robust prayer that moves from the greater to the lesser, from creation to history, all the way down to their present circumstance. Now they have God's undivided attention and they can ask for absolutely anything that they want to in the spirit. And I'm closing with a question that I'm dying to know the answer to. What do they ask for? They've got a God who can move creation. They've got a God who can move history. They've got a God who can do anything with these threats. What are they going to ask for? What would you ask for in a situation where you feel pressed and persecuted and suffering and not sure what to do next, and you feel like the way is uncertain and the future is uncertain? What would you ask God to do It's beautiful that there are many prayers in scripture, many things to ask for, but since we're in Acts 4, we're going to attend to what they ask for, verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. The church doesn't pray for safety She prays for boldness. She doesn't pray for retreats. She prays for advance. She doesn't pray that the world would leave her alone and ignore her and stop picking on her. She prays that God will give her the strength to do what God has called her to do, to stand in the gap in this hard place and speak truth in love. May God do that for us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Sovereign Lord, you made everything, everything we see, everything we can't see. You have controlled history perfectly. Not a hair can fall from our head without your perfect and predestined plan. And so now, Lord, look upon us in our sin and our struggles in our families, in our nation, in our church body. Look upon these things and give us boldness as your church in the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.